0: My name is Joe McKechnie, and I am so blessed to be the pastor here at Chapel Roswell. Some of you have had the chance to meet. This is only my 10th week, and I want to thank you guys, okay? I want to thank you for not running us out of town yet, okay? I really do appreciate that. It's an honor to be here at Chapel Roswell. And I'm going to share a little bit about my Chapel Roswell story, too, because it goes back actually four years, even though Chapel Roswell has been here for three I'm excited about the anniversary of Chapel Roswell and the mighty, mighty things, the life-changing, the eternal things that God is doing through each of us together. Now, as some of you may have known, if you were here maybe for some of the previous messages since I've arrived. Before, I was called into vocational ministry. I was a television sportscaster, and so I like to use a lot of sports analogies, and I'm not going to disappoint. I'm going to do the same thing this morning. Now, if you like football, okay, then this will be maybe four minutes that will really make your day. If you don't like it, okay, if you hate sports, if you just don't like it, I've calculated it. It's only 6% of the sermon, okay? So 94% you may like. So just bear with me, okay? Here's what we're going to do. This is a true story about a high school football team in Mississippi. It's a kind of a quiz. So put on your thinking caps this morning if you're a sports fan. And I'm even going to ask for your input from the congregation, okay? So, so think about this. It was the last game of the high school football season... A team in Mississippi, they were the home team on this last night of the season, they had to win the game, okay, if you win the game, that's good, but if they wanted to propel themselves into the playoffs, they had to win because of some tie-breaking procedures by at least four points, okay, so they had to win by how many? Four, good stuff, all right. With me so far, it was a hard-fought game. The opponent was tough. They were fierce. They were mighty. But the home team, they had a two-point lead. Okay, they were on their opponent's 40-yard line with two seconds left on the clock. Time for one last play. What are you going to do? Remember, you have to win by how many? Four in order to go to the postseason. They're winning by two. They're on their opponent's 40 yard line if they pick up the win. Yeah, that's a great way to end the season, but it doesn't push them into the playoffs. So they're up by two the balls on the opponent's 40 yard line. What choices does the coach have anybody? Kick a field goal. Kick a field goal. Okay, that, that's probably what I would have thought. That would have been a 57-yard field goal. That's a long way for a high school kicker. Their kicker really didn't have the range for that. So, so, so they kind of discounted that. Uh, what are some other things that you could do? Hail Mary. Yeah, we all like the Hail Mary. Um, they could try that. That might, might you know, get them into the end zone. Uh, maybe they could try a, a trick play, trying to get the ball to the end zone. They only had time for one more play. They're up by two. So here's what the coach did. He took the ball from the quarterback. Quarterback took it from the center. He pitched it back to his fastest running back. And instead of running up the middle, the running back turned the opposite way, ran towards his own goal line out of the back of his end zone, which equals what? A safety, which does what? Gives the other team two points. That tied up the game. They went into overtime, and the home team won by a touchdown by seven. How illogical is that, though, to run the ball towards your own goal line? You're sacrificing points, but it's for the greater good. I love this story because it's a radical play call that really caught everyone off guard. Okay, no one really thought that they would expect that. And I love it because it speaks of the Christian life. Very often, we're called to do things by God that seem counterintuitive, Okay, they seem to go against the nature of our agendas or against our own desires. But but God's calling us to move in a way that goes against the grain of the world. And our scripture this morning talks about that. God calls us to do things that seem even contrary to what the world is telling us to do. He calls us to to love people who uh, we may not be anything like. He calls us to go in directions that often go against, like I said, our own desires and agendas. And this morning, we're going to go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Acts 2. There are also Bibles in the pews, and as always, if you want to take one of those for yourself, we invite you to do that. We'll go through and we'll restock that later on. So let me set the stage for this scripture from Acts. The books of the Bible were written individually, okay, at different times, from different locations, by different authors. They weren't titled. And as they began to circulate, they were just kind of assigned informal titles by the people who would read them. The book of Acts refers to the Acts of the Apostles. Now, the apostles weren't just the 12 disciples of Jesus. They just weren't the ones who were following him really closely. The apostles really represented those people who were following Jesus, those people who gave their lives to Christ, who were following in this new faith that would later come to be known Christianity. Okay, so Acts was written in about 60 AD. It was written by Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now, the book of Acts, it tells us about the early church, and it ends rather abruptly. If you read it through from beginning to end, you'll say, wait a second, it kind of left me wanting more. And that's because scholars think that Luke was going to write a third letter, a third book, and he was going to pick up where it left off. So Acts more or less connects the dots between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven by Jesus, okay, Jesus' ministry on earth, and the start of the Christian church. It tells us the start of, of the Christian church, the early... Believers. It tells us about the early church leaders and how God blessed their efforts and their ministries. And you can see people like metal to a magnet or moth to a flame being attracted to this new faith because people were living lives that were so different. And as we read this passage from the book of Acts, which talks about the first century church, I pray that it can remind you of Chapel Roswell and some of the things that we are doing here. So Acts 2 verses 42 through 47, telling us about the early believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I remember when I first met Eric Lee. He's the pastor who had vision and who started Chapel Roswell three years ago. I met him about six and a half years ago. I was appointed to to, to pastor a church in the city of Canton. At that time, Eric was at a, pa- at a, a church in Cartersville that he had started, and, and there were five pastors. We would all meet every Tuesday morning at Cracker Barrel for lunch. okay We did this every Tuesday morning for about three years. All of us were about the same age. Four of the five of us had started churches, so we knew what it was like to try to reach beyond the church walls to bring people together into a newfound community of faith. We're all passionate about reaching others. Eric and I even led a youth retreat, and, and he and I kind of connected. We kind of got each other's sense of humor, and if you know his sense of humor, and, and, and maybe you don't yet know mine, but, but they're not easy to get sometimes, but, but we got it. One day, Eric told us that he was being appointed to Roswell United Methodist Church to start a new service that was aimed at reaching the unchurched. that was aimed at going out into the community, to be a church within a church and a congregation unlike any other. Now, three years into Chapel Roswell, it's an honor to be a part of it. I remember even before it was called Chapel Roswell, all of the guys from our breakfast group, we all came over here. We came into that doorway, and we walked in, and we could see all of the renovations that were taking place in the chapel. And Eric shared his vision, and he shared the mission of what this new congregation would be all about. In fact, Eric and I were having lunch together next Thursday. Now, here's some verbiage that was crafted years ago. It's a reminder of why Chapel Roswell exists as a community of faith and and how we're called to continue to live out that vision and that mission. Chapel Roswell's motto is life and faith in the round. The round indicates our shared life and our faith with Christ at the center while also representing the shape of our worship space here this morning. Chapel Roswell is a church within a church at Roswell United Methodist, created to be a modern expression of an historic faith. The new movement of the church in the heart of Roswell is the product of a large, established church's desire to find new ways to be the church to future generations. Christianity has blessed the world for thousands of years, and Chapel Roswell is here to carry on that tradition. We seek a language that people can understand and to address life in a way that matters. Chapel Roswell is an open, creative environment where people can find their place and be a part of something holy. The passage that we read in Acts this morning talks about people who were starting a new community of faith. The early Christians, they didn't have church buildings as we know them. Church buildings wouldn't come about until about the 4th century A.D. So what did they do? How did they live out their faith? Where did they go and what did they do? Well, let's go back to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer it tells us that they devoted themselves to the teachings of the early church as we maybe focus on understanding scripture and understanding god's word in a deeper and deeper way it speaks of fellowship in other words doing life together Walking through with one another those ups and downs that we all face at a myriad of times in our existence. And it says that there was a strong sense of community. I hope, I really hope that you find that sense of community here at Chapel Roswell. And if you haven't, don't fret because we're focusing on ways to continue to do that. Focus themselves on the teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. That refers to both Holy Communion and also meals together. We'll talk about that in a second. And to prayer. Verse 43 tells us that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. You know, I hope that what we do in here will flood the streets out there so that people will be drawn, that people will be in awe of what God is doing through Chapel Roswell. And I know that through the three years of Chapel Roswell, you have seen some mighty, powerful things. You've witnessed the movement of the Holy Spirit in incredible, touching ways, changing lives, affecting all eternity by what goes on in here. You've been a part of powerful worship that meets us at the point of our deepest needs. And I I pray that you are still in awe by the experience that God is leading us together with and through. Knowing that God is at work in us and with us and through us takes us to verse 44. It says that the believers did life together. It says that they had everything in common. Okay, this is not to say that they agreed on everything, because they certainly didn't. The scripture tells us that they came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some were poor, some were rich, some were Jewish, some were Gentile, but despite the fact that they didn't have a lot of things in common, they had the most important thing in common, and that equaled everything, and that was the love of Christ that Jesus has for them and the love that they had for Christ. Their faith in Jesus defined who they were and defined how they were called to live out their lives. All of their differences paled in comparison to the unity that they had because of their faith in Christ. Verse 45 says that they sold their property and possessions and they gave to those who had in need. In other words, they sacrificed for the greater good and they went out of their way to make sure the needs of others were taken care of. Not only the needs of other believers, but even needs of those who are outside of the faith. There would be a Roman emperor about 300 years later who who would talk about the ways in which the early Christians affected so many people, even people who weren't like them, even people who weren't a part of their faith. And that made a bigger difference than any government could. Which leads us to verse 46. It says that they met every day together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And so we talked about the fact that they celebrated Holy Communion together. We talked about that in an early passage here. Though it's not talking about breaking bread through Holy Communion. The Greek word talks about having meals together. Okay, that intimacy that came along with the meal and in that day and age, you didn't just go to Starbucks and meet for a coffee. You didn't go to Chili's or Applebee's or Outback to, to have a meal with one another. Rather, the meal would take a long time to prepare. It was a sign of intimacy, of closeness, of a close-knit community coming together. To dine together was a deep sign of intimacy, and that's what they did. And then verse 47 says that they continued and enjoyed the favor of all people. I pray that with the love that we show to those in our community, that that we can enjoy the favor of all people. Because to be honest with you, sometimes churches aren't so good at that. It says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I pray that we're praising God with the ways in which we live our lives. Are we going out of our way to let the good news of Jesus to us be good news to those around us? And so, this passage from the book of Acts gives us a glimpse into the early church and it shows us how the early followers of Jesus lived their lives. What was the result of that? Like we saw, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People are drawn to lives that are different. Not only are we called to live lives that are different from the rest of our culture, friends, we're called to live lives that are different than the way they were before we knew Christ. How was your life different? How was my life different? How does our time together in this community of faith make us different people? People, like I said, are drawn to a life of different people are looking for a demonstration that life can be differently than the status quo of our culture says that you should live. That that, that despite our circumstances, we have a a God-given peace and a hope and a joy that surpasses all human understanding. That despite those who hurt us, we have a supernatural ability to forgive, Uh, not under our own strength, because I'll be honest with you, I can't do that. Okay, I can't do that on my own, but God gives us the strength to do that. We can embrace those around us who aren't like us. Again, not through our own strength, because I can't always do that, but through the power of God and his Holy Spirit. I became a Christian when I was 12 because of the youth group in which I grew up in in Cobb County. So I became a follower of Christ at the age of 12. So I accepted Jesus as Savior, but but am I willing to follow him as Lord? Am I following Christ so closely that it affects the ways in which I treat other people? Following Christ will affect the ways in which we spend our time. Following Christ will affect the ways in which we spend our money. Following Christ will affect the things that get our time and attention, and following Christ will affect the ways in which we seek our identity and our worth. To be a follower of Christ, like I said, we're called to be different from the world because we're following Jesus who was deliberately and intentionally different from the world one of the reasons at times in my own life I I haven't experienced all that God maybe had in store for me at a particular time was because I wasn't always willing to take that leap of faith. To to truly follow God into unknown territory. To to follow God with all of my heart. To to follow Him where He's called me to go. I'm reminded of the African impala. That's a a medium-sized antelope. It's an Eastern and South Africa, it can jump to a height of over 10 feet. It can jump 30 feet in length. And yet in many cases at zoos, they're, they're held in little, not cages necessarily, but just enclosements, fences that are only 4 feet tall. That just doesn't seem to, to be right because after all, they, 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 they can jump 30 feet. They can jump 10 feet in the air. But a zoo will hold them in place by a 4-foot wall? You see, these animals, for whatever reason, they won't jump if they can't see where they're going to land. So these small, flimsy, small, short enclosures are able to keep the African impala inside the fence. Friends, when we face difficult times, when we face uncertainty, are we willing to fully place our trust in God? Even if it means leading us to a place that we cannot see, that we may not fully understand. Because the truth is, if you're anything like me, man, we can often get terrified, maybe even paralyzed by the unknown. And it keeps us from fully trusting in God's will. Instead of leaning and pressing into God, we rely on our own agendas and desires are we willing to do something so bold, so radical, and so mighty that it is doomed for failure unless God is in the midst of it? Chapel Roswell is an awesome example of that, of something so mighty that we know that God is in the midst of it. I remember being here four years ago with Erica and we prayed for Chapel Roswell even if we didn't know yet the name of Chapel Roswell. Eric and I and several of our dear friends, we, we each started churches. We planted churches. You, you talk about scary stuff. You, you go into a place where there's a community in which you, you aren't familiar. You, you don't know and you, you, you don't have a building. You don't have any people. You don't have any land. You, you're given a little bit of, of money, but, but you have to kind of start things from scratch. But each of us had the passion to reach people who weren't being reached. And I pray that here at Chapel Roswell, we never lose sight of that. that. We're praying for not only one another within this awesome community of faith, but we're praying for those who are not yet a part of it. Let me pose a question and then we'll come in for a landing this morning. How many of you stand up if you were here on the first Sunday of Chapel Roswell? That's pretty cool. That's awesome we thank you guys for the vision that you had for the call to see something different in this community lives have been transformed because of your prayers because of your presence deep-rooted friendships have been established God has been glorified and a community has come to know this as a safe and welcoming place where people can be wooed into a deeper relationship with God where our community is better off of your presence in it. And we, when we look back and see all that God has done, we know that God is not through with us, that Scripture promises us that God finishes what he starts, and I pray that our best days are still ahead of us. Finally... Larry Walters is a name with which most of you are unfamiliar, but he was a truck driver who ever since he was a little kid had the dream of being in the Air Force. Unfortunately, there was one problem for Larry Walters, and that was his poor eyesight. He wasn't able to make it into the Air Force. He tried to work on a private pilot's license, but he never finished that. But in an effort to achieve his dream of flight, he came up with kind of an unusual proposition. He went to visit an Army-Navy surplus store... And he saw these large weather balloons. These things are eight feet in diameter. So these are massive helium-filled weather balloons. And this is what Larry Walters decided to do. Now, not the smartest thing in the world. I'm going to tell you right now, kids, don't try this at home. Okay? He figured that if he was sitting in his lawn chair, his cheap aluminum lawn chair, and he affixed to it several large helium-filled weather balloons, that he could achieve flight. True story. Okay, like I said, these weren't small balloons. These were eight feet in diameter. He, he spent weeks studying the weather patterns of Southern California, which is where he lived. And finally, Larry Walters was ready for flight. He invited several of his friends to come over. He sat down in his cheap aluminum chair. He had several friends who helped him get off the ground, literally. He attached 42 Forty-two of these eight foot in diameter, helium-filled weather balloons to his aluminum lawn chair. To add stability, he took 35-gallon jugs of water. He affixed them to the side so he would have a little bit of stability. He had it planned perfectly, or so he thought. You see, in his mind, he was going to sit in the chair, and they would slowly untether all of the balloons, and he would be lofted up to uh, maybe an altitude of about 1,000 feet. He had his camera. He was going to take pictures. In his lap, he had a pellet gun, and when it was time to come down, he he would shoot at one of the balloons and other balloons and other balloons, and that would lift him not up, but, but I guess then take him down. So he was in his armchair, his lawn chair. He was ready to go. He had his pellet gun in his lap, he had his camera around his neck. He gave the thumbs up to his buddies. They untethered a couple of the helium-filled balloons. These weather balloons, though, were so powerful and so mighty that that, that even after just untethering a couple of them, it pulled the entire lawn chair up into the sky, breaking the, 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 the ways in which the others had been affixed to the ground. The jolt was just impressive. As he jolted up and flew up, 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 and away into the sky, Larry Walters went. Now, keep in mind, he had no way to steer this thing His goal of reaching 1,000 feet of altitude was realized very, very quickly. In fact, he was now climbing at 1,000 feet per minute. He got up to 16,000 feet. True story. The winds had shifted. They sent Larry Walters and his uncontrollable flying lawn chair into the flight path of LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. True story. Airline pilots were calling air traffic control, saying that there's a man in a lawn chair with a pellet gun in his lap. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. This was dangerous. Not only was there the risk of collision, but but there was the risk of him getting sucked into a jet engine. That would be catastrophic for all involved. Finally, after about an hour of flying, he started to shoot out the weather balloons with his pellet gun, and and he crashed into the ground. He he was physically okay. He was arrested. He was uh, uh, eventually fined $1,500 and banned from ever trying such a stunt again. True story. The Smithsonian Institute actually wanted to take his lawn chair and have it on display. He was also awarded an infamous Darwin Award. Now, if you're ever familiar with those, that's given to people who do some crazy, crazy things. He went on a wild ride, greater than anything he ever expected. You and I may not be quite so reckless I pray that we can follow the reckless love of Jesus Christ. And when we do, we'll experience a wild ride of our own, a ride in which we stake our faith and our hope and our joy into something and someone bigger than ourselves. God called me from one career into another. God called me from one church then to Chapel Roswell. There was a time when each of you stepped into Chapel Roswell for the first time. And I pray that you can look back and you can see the fingerprints of God all over that. I like to think that our best days are yet to come, that God isn't through with us, not only as individuals, but corporately as a community of faith. And I know that God is going to blow us away with all that He has in store for you. And for me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the mission and the ministry and the vision of Chapel Roswell. We celebrate the three years that this community of faith has been making a difference here in this community and in this world and in the lives of countless individuals. May we look back to see all of the mighty things that we have done and may it fill us with hope as we gaze ahead into the future. Scripture tells us, Lord, that you are at work in our lives, and may we allow you, Lord, who began a good work within us, to continue to be at work in our lives, transforming us, as the Bible says, into the likeness of Jesus. May your love for others overflow more and more through us, and may we keep growing in our knowledge and our understanding of you. May we be constantly reminded of what really matters as we continue we pray to keep the main thing the main thing may our lives our words our actions our reactions our attitudes be an outflow of the work that you are doing in us and may those around us be blessed because we have been blessed by you it's in jesus name we pray